0: Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church? At All right, how are we doing this morning? Awesome. 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 You feeling refreshed after the extra hour of sleep? That sounds like a nervous laugh. (laughs) Awesome. All right, well, um, my name is Josh, one of the teaching pastors here at the District Church. I'm glad to be here with you guys. I'm excited. It's always a a joy and an honor to open up God's word and to be able to share it with you. Um, And so hopefully as we walk through this text that God will illuminate our minds and inflame our hearts to see what he has to say and call us to go and live out the life we believe we're going to be continuing in in Acts, specifically in Acts chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 19 is where we're going to pick up, but before we begin, um, we didn't do confession this morning, and so I think it's appropriate that we do it right now. Um, There's some things I need to talk to you guys about and that you may need to repent on, so hear me out on this. (coughs) Some of you guys have jumped straight to Christmas, and I don't understand it. I mean, we... We're, we're like the first weekend in November, guys. I can't believe this. Like, for those of you who are jumped into Christmas, I see you. I've seen your Instagram stories. Who do you think you are? Like, what gives you the right to just skip over Thanksgiving? Guys, like, I mean, come on. Yeah, right. You guys, you can, no. Look, I get it. I get it. Thanksgiving is like John the Baptist; it's only pointing to something greater to come. So don't really focus on him. I get it, but can we can we have a little bit respect? (laughs) Thanks, Richard. Can we have a little bit of respect for Thanksgiving? Just a little bit. I know you guys aren't going to, and I'm probably going to get flooded with more pictures of Christmas, but it's all right. I mean, I guess you guys could be like Dwayne, and he's not here, so I'm going to throw him under the bus uh, and keep your lights up all year, and just (laughs) no one's going to suspect anything. Right. okay, All right. That's my rant. I'm done. We're not really going to repent of it, although some of you should. Um, This morning, we're going to be jumping back into Acts. Um, And as we jump into this chapter, uh, I want to highlight some things that are going to be seen for the next uh, couple of chapters, really to the end of the book. Right. So the last few weeks, the last months, however long we've been in Acts, we have looked at the church going forth to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. Right. The early church has gone out to the Jews, Uh, whether incorrect thinking or just proximity. They have gone specifically to the Jews um, and maybe some scattered stories of of some Gentiles coming to to the Lord. But we're going to see three shifts. We're not going to see them all today, but in the next coming weeks, we'll see three shifts in the narrative of the Christian story. Following the church at Antioch. So the first shift that you're going to notice is what we just talked about is the central location, like the epicenter of the church in the New Testament, specifically was Jerusalem. That's where the Lord came down. He, he called the disciples to go to every nation, to Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so the epicenter was Jerusalem. And I say was because it begins to shift in this chapter. It begins to shift to Antioch a Gentile city. So you'll see that first shift in our next coming weeks and even in today. The second shift you'll see is the story begins to remove Peter, maybe not remove him because we'll see him in Acts, but it starts to focus on Paul and his missionary journeys. So Luke goes from the story of Peter and what the early church and the Jews have done to now focusing on Paul's missionary journeys throughout the rest of the book. And the third shift, which is what we'll be walking through today, is we finally see the gospel going out to the Gentile nations. It is no longer about the Jews. It's about both Jews and Gentiles. And as we've seen last week, and the last couple of weeks, as Peter kicked it off preaching to Cornelius, the Gentile call has now arrived. The gospel is being spread to the ends of the earth, as Jesus would call us to in Acts 1-8. So these are the three main shifts that you're going to start to see in the narrative of the Christian story in the next couple of weeks and as we close out Acts. So what I'm going to do this morning is um, let's go ahead and go to the word or go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll jump into the word um, and we'll get after this morning. So if you will, Lord, thank you for your great grace. It is through Jesus that we have been made new and have been given this new name. Lord, it is in him that our sins have been forgiven, and it's by his blood that we are redeemed, called sons and daughters of God, adopted into this glorious family. And it's in him that we've been given the Holy Spirit, who then empowers us to go and share this same love, share this same grace and mercy to a dark and dying world around us. Lord, may your word this morning illuminate these truths, so that we too can be characterized as bold, humble and generous, that the title that we now claim is Christian would not be one that's watered down, but one that reflects the truth that we have within us. Lord, I pray these things this morning in your great and glorious name, amen. So as we walk through this passage, and we're kind of going to go and stop and go and stop, so just to kind of give you a, a picture of how we're going to look at this new church in Antioch, Um, I want you to see three characteristics or qualities of this church. And these characteristics look like this. They were bold, they were humble, and they were generous. So I'll say that again. They were bold, they were humble, and they were generous. And as we read through this passage, looking at these characteristics, I, I want you to see that these are heroes of our faith, but as I would call them, heroes that don't wear capes. Because as we'll see, Luke makes a big highlight to show that this church, this movement, is on the backs of men and women that we have no idea who they are. And in that humility, in that boldness, in that generosity, this new church is born. You know, the vast majority of great men and women have been utterly forgotten. If you think about all the people that you have never heard of or have never been heard about. There's a large number. The Latin poet Horace wrote this about warriors of years past. In endless night they sleep unwept unknown. No bard had they to make all time their own. And if you've been out to Crown Hill, the cemetery off of 38th, and I, I know you probably hang out there every once in a while, right? I do go out there. It's—I can't say it's fun, but it's a—it's a good, humble experience. But when you go out there, there is a place in the cemetery for unknown soldiers, warriors that have fought in battles that have no names, but just crosses. Men and women who are remembered by no one but God. Now, thankfully. That isn't our whole history, right? Thankfully, God in his grace gives us writings, gives us preservation of things that have happened in history for us to learn about, to be encouraged by, and to challenge us. Proverbs 13, 20 tells us, he who walks with the wise become wise. And one of the ways that we can walk in wisdom or with the wise, is by taking a look at men and women who have gone before us. Jonathan Edwards said this about reading and learning from dead men and women. There are two ways of representing and recommending true religion and virtue to the world. The one by doctrine and precept, the other by instance and example. And so we get to see an and example in this early church of how they lived, how they pursued the Lord, How they were bold how they were humble how they were generous and we get to learn from them this morning hebrews 11 actually shows us a great list of men and women who we have no idea who they are who have gone before us and this author reminds us countless times in this book to look back to look back and find encouragement find confidence find inspiration in these men and women who have placed their trust and hope in the gospel and found their source in that truth. So here is what we're going to do. We're going to take a look back at Luke's preservation of the story of the church at Antioch, the first Gentile church. So if you guys will follow along with me, starting in verse 19, this is where we'll pick it up. Now those who were scattered before... Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who were coming to Antioch, who spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So if you'll remember Acts 8, right, how... Luke opens up that chapter, that the church was being scattered because of persecution from Stephen. And he's drawing back again to what is calling these people out of Jerusalem is persecution. And he's giving us this picture again that these men and women are being sent out, but not to the Jews this time. He's got a different audience that they are being sent to. And we see men of Cyprus and Cyrene, they, they go to the Hellenists. They go to the Gentiles and begin preaching the word of God. Now, just location-wise, to give you an example of how far they had traveled. So Antioch it, itself was about 400 miles from Jerusalem. So they traveled a long distance. And as we'll see, they traveled to a very, what I would say, a very hostile and immoral city but as one commentator describes these short verses that we just read, he says that these few words tell us of one of the greatest events in history. Now, for the first time, the church is going out and preaching the gospel to Gentiles. Now, one could argue that Philip went to Samaria. Now, if you understand Jewish history, Samaritans would be half Jews, half Gentiles, so Luke doesn't describe them specifically as Gentiles. And We even talked about Peter going to Cornelius last week, but even in that, Peter was summoned by a Gentile to come and preach the gospel. So here we have the first time the church going out on the backs of men and women to the Gentiles. And Luke shows us this shift. And as I said earlier, it starts in one of the most immoral cities in the ancient world. Antioch was known as the third greatest city in the first century next to Rome, and next to Alexandria. She was known for her business, her commerce, her sophistication, and her culture. But she was also known for her pursuit of pleasure by any means, which literally went on day and night. You think about that for a second? Pursuing pleasure that's fleeting day and night, how exhausting must that be? What's funny is I read this week, finding out one of the pleasures they, they, had, um, they had, they were known for their chariot races. So living in Indy, I'm thinking, this is like the first 500, right? They're known for their chariot races. We're known for the 500. We've got a connection there. I hope that's the only connection. But they are also known for being luxuriously immoral. Not just immoral, luxuriously immoral. You see, the most famous thing about Antioch was their worship of Daphne. Not the Scooby-Doo character. But in Greek mythology, Daphne was known as a mortal woman who the god Apollo pursued and fell in love with and turned into a bush to keep her immortal. You see, she is also considered the god of sex. And they had a temple five miles outside of Antioch that worshiped this god of sex through prostitution and a reenactment every night of Apollo pursuing Daphne. One of the ancient Roman senators described Antioch as the reason for Rome having cultural decline, even though Rome was 1,600 miles south of Antioch. He would literally say, What happens in Antioch stays in Antioch. Now, he didn't say that, but you get the point, right? The immorality of this city. And yet here we have the boldness of the early church to go to Antioch, to enter into this dark space and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And out of this corruption Out of this immoral living, we get our first Gentile church. Think about this for a second. These men and women are fleeing persecution. They run 400 miles away from Jerusalem to the most immoral city in the world just to share the gospel. And then the people turn to the Lord. It's incredible that this early church decides to find Antioch as their central spot especially with what's going on. You know, I think of it, if if you're up in heaven watching this replay, God's like, find the most immoral city and I'll change it. Like angels, watch this. Hold my grape juice. But let this be a reminder for us. Let this be a reminder that when there are what would seem like hopeless and helpless Places in our lives, hopeless and helpless places in this world that would cause us to be weary that God could do something. Let us find hope in this truth that God can shine the light and redeem any dark place. Whether it's in your life, whether it's in the city, in your family. This story that God sends these men and women out to redeem and such a moral city should give us hope that he can change anyone. As long as there is breath in someone's lungs, there is hope and joy to be had in Christ. Now, my question as we read about these men from Phoenicia and Cyprus and Cyrene is, where does their boldness come from? Because this is, this is the linchpin of how they can go into such a moral city. That answer is found in verse 21 is the hand of the Lord was upon them. How how can people go into such dark and dying places and have boldness? It's because of the Lord. How can we church plant in a city that has a, a large population but a very small gospel presence? It's the hand of the Lord. David cries out in Psalm 121, where does my help come from? Help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And guys, no ministry, no matter how good the preacher is, no matter how cool and hip the church seems, no matter how well the music sounds, and it sounded great this morning, Jordan, no matter how well the organization flows, if the hand of the Lord is not upon that church, those people, that ministry will never truly succeed. And it's because of God's hand upon these men and women that they could be bold, they could be humble, they could be generous. And it's why we see this early church, multiply, be blessed. I talked about humility that we find in these opening verses. And one of the things that stuck out this week over and over as I kept reading this is Luke doesn't mention who was sent out. Luke doesn't give any names. He just says these men went out to Antioch. And this is amazing because it's countercultural, right, to what we would do in writing a story. We might throw some names out like so-and-so did this, so-and-so did this, so-and-so did this. But Luke here is highlighting more of their faith and less of who they were. And it's so easy in this world, especially even for me, to be recognized or want to be recognized and to be noticed. For my name to be dropped when something worthwhile is done. As one commentator puts this, Luke gives us these nameless heroes of Christ, and it has always been one of the tragedies this church has known, that men have wished to be noticed and named when they did something worthwhile. What the church has always needed, and perhaps more than any other time, the church has needed people who never care who gains the credit for so long as the work is done. You see, these men may not have their names written in history books, but they will have their name forever written in God's eternal life. And these are the type of men and women who are starting this church. And I want to lay this foundation here because you're going to see why this humility is so important. It leads to action. It leads to them showing great grace and mercy and generosity as we go through this chapter. But here we have the transition of this early church by a bunch of no-named heroes with no capes. And I think what we need the most in our church, in our own lives, is to be willing to live like this, is to never long to gain credit for the work we've done as long as the work is done. And I tell you, this is absolutely countercultural to how we live. And sadly, it's even infected our churches as well. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, we should just be a bunch of doormats and people just abuse and use us. But what I am saying is it's the heart, the, the humbleness, the willing to just be in the background and do whatever is needed for the church to grow. And man, this, is, this has rocked me this week. Because who doesn't want to be recognized for their work, Right? If you were to place yourself in first century and, you know, you get a chance to sit down with Luke and hear the story of him writing about Antioch, man, if you were one of those people that first went to Antioch, wouldn't wouldn't you want to see your name there? I mean, I would, right? I'd be like, Luke, man, you know what I did? You know who I left? Like, why isn't my name here? Who doesn't want that praise? Who likes going around doing the difficult jobs and never being admonished for it? But here is the humility of the early church. No names, just inflamed hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit to go and share the gospel that has radically changed them. These are the people that I want to meet in heaven, right? I want to meet those no-namers. I want to meet those men and women who have helped this faith grow and just did it because they loved the Lord and they wanted to see his gospel flourish. These are the people that I hope my life emulates. And these are the people that I hope that if we were to characterize this church, this is how we would be characterized. As humble, as bold, as generous men and women who love the Lord, and they want to see the gospel flourish in Indianapolis. Let's keep reading and see how this church continues to grow. Back in verse 22, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So in the classic movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Anybody seen that movie? I'm about, man, really going to date. Okay. Thank the Lord for you all. Okay. A Wonderful Life? Okay, good. I thought there was going to be like three people in here. Anyways. Well, so to give a synopsis for those who have not seen this movie, it it is a great movie that I would recommend. And in In the Christmas season, right, after Thanksgiving, it'll be on all the time. (laughs) Just throwing that out there. But in short, the synopsis is George Bailey, right? He's the main character of this story. He grows up in the 1920s and 30s in a town called Bedford Falls. Now, throughout this movie, we get glimpses of George's selflessness as he lived his life. You see some examples as a child. He saves his little brother from drowning when his brother crashed through the ice. You see, he saved a pharmacy patient from being poisoned while he worked at the drugstore. In that same scenario, you also see him save his boss for poisoning the patient because he was drunk at the time he was working. He did all this in selflessness. He did all this before he even turned 13. From early on in this movie, we see that George is very smart, very charismatic, and very tender-hearted. And his life is marked by making sacrifices for people and allowing others to get a step ahead of him, and he never becomes the world traveler that he always desired to be. His friends and his family find success all over the world, including his little brother, who he gives his own money that he saved to go to college to his brother so that he could then go and we find out that his little brother harry eventually goes on to win the congressional medal of honor for all the lives he had saved in world war ii even when george's father died he stayed in bedford falls to keep the bank that his father owned open because if he left the bank would close and the enemy mr potter not Harry, would own the town. And he would lay massive debt and enslave the city. So George stays in Bedford Falls because he knows that if he didn't, these people would be slaved to their debt. Constantly, George is making sacrifices for his friends, his family, the loved ones in this city so that they could live a wonderful life even as his dreams take a backseat see another hero that we encounter in this passage one that I would say doesn't wear a cape is Barnabas a man who lived selflessly to see the church flourish and I pray our church would be filled with men like Barnabas with a love a humbleness about them to live generously because of the generous grace we've been bestowed with. Now, you may be thinking, well, how is this a no-name hero because his name's right here? I'll explain that. Throughout the book of Acts, we see our boy Barnabas as one who gives himself up, gives himself away. He lives like George, very selflessly. You see, in Acts 4, the first time we meet Barnabas, we notice that his field had been sold, he did it himself, and he brought it to the church so that they could use it. Then in chapter 9, we see that Barnabas goes and defends Saul, who had recently been converted and the church of Jerusalem was weary that Saul was still a murderer. He sticks his neck out. He becomes an advocate for Saul. In fact, the real name that we find out in Acts 4 for Barnabas isn't Barnabas at all. His real name is actually Joseph, but his nickname was Barnabas because he was a son of an encouragement. I mean, how would you like a nickname like that, right? Like, my nickname in high school was Gonzo. It means nothing. But Barnabas was called the son of encourager, the son of encouragement because of how he lived his life. And he gets the call to Antioch and we see that he leaves first of all that's in and of itself magnificent that he would leave such a growing rooted place in jerusalem to go to a gentile city that is known for its immorality and he goes to find the report of these men and women these gentiles being saved and to report back to the church in jerusalem we see what a relief this guy is what an encourager this guy is what spirit he brings to the church because luke shows us that upon arrival he's glad luke shows that upon arrival barnabas doesn't respond like we learned last week of how the church responded to the gentiles being saved if you remember duane's sermon last week Peter comes to the church of Jerusalem, tells them about the saving of Cornelius, and their first response is to be cynical. Their first response is to be critical of Peter's gospel mission. But here we have a 180 degree turn in how Barnabas responds. And it's a picture of who he is. this is what I pray for for our church, that we would be a bunch of Barnabases, or Barnabai, right? I think that's the plural. That we would be marked by our encouragement for one another to live selflessly, to live generously, to live humbly, not counting ourselves as anything, but counting others greater than us. That's the mark that Barnabas leaves in the church of Antioch. And it's also the mark of a believer in Christ, because Christ was humble, we too then can be humble and generous and, and bold. And here's another reason I think that Barnabas is such a selfless, no-named hero. I think this impacted me the most this week. You see, you see what he did in verse 25 and 26? You see that this church is growing, right? The hand of the Lord is on this church. Many believers or many Gentiles are becoming believers, So, this is a brand new church plant. And Barnabas is the man, right? He's the one that's growing the church. And he has a chance to just stay there and be the one in front. But what does he do? Barnabas goes to Tarsus and looks for Saul. And when he finds him, he brings him back to Antioch. You think about that for a second. The humility of understanding the gifts he had and understanding that there was somebody who could lead and flourish the church better than he did. And so he took a step back and brought somebody, as we see what Luke as describes, better than him, better speaker, better preacher, better theologian. He goes out and he gets somebody to take his place so that he could then play the background so that he then could be humble and use his gifts in a different light so that the church could grow. And we actually don't even hear much about Barnabas' life, teaching, up until about Acts 13. And really, as we see the shift in the New Testament from Barnabas to Saul or Barnabas to Paul, Luke starts to flip and show that Paul and Barnabas are now the ones who are going out, which would mean that Paul is now the leader in that group. Paul is the one that's stepping up. And I can't help but think that Barnabas, in his humility, knew what was about to come and still went and found Saul and brought him to Antioch. The humility to do that, to me, is baffling. But we see in Acts chapter 13 kind of this picture of how This humility plays itself out. You see, I I talked about Barnabas. We don't really know much about him after this. We see two other instances in Acts 13 and 14 where Luke kind of drives home the point that Paul is now the man. The first time in Acts chapter 13, uh, we see that Luke describes Paul and Barnabas going out and and preaching the gospel, and, and they start calling them God's. And and Paul and Barnabas spoke out about this. What's funny to me is I don't think Paul and Barnabas spoke out. I think Paul spoke out, and and Barnabas is just kind of in the background nodding, like, yep, you're right, just like a good executive pastor does, stays behind that lead pastor, and yeah, you're right, that's what we're going to do. But here we also see in Acts 14, and this kind of drives home the point that Paul is now replacing Barnabas Acts chapter 14 in Lystra, the people come out and start worshiping both of them. Paul and Barnabas had had healed someone, and so the city comes out, and they they start worshiping them for this healing. And I know you guys probably experience that every day in life, right? People worshiping you, but it's all right. Here's how you respond now. So Barnabas and Paul are here, and, and here's the terms they give to these two men. Barnabas is called Zeus, and Paul is called Hermes. And if you're familiar with Greek mythology, Zeus is the man. Like Zeus is the one who's controlling everything. And Herbes is the one that's speaking for Zeus, the God. He's he's the mouthpiece. And so we see this example even through Gentiles seeing Paul and Barnabas' relationship as Paul is the one who's preaching and Barnabas is kind of playing the background. And here's what I'm getting at here. Barnabas, in his selflessness, he saw a need for the church to grow. He saw his gifts, his talents, and he knew that he needed somebody else to come in and take over. And for him to just remain and be steadfast and be faithful to that church as the second in command. And so he goes and gets Paul. And this, among countless other acts from Barnabas, taking the background helps the church in the New Testament grow. A man who is selfless. A man who gives his life, not worrying about receiving any recognition. You know, I think it's it's a part of God's humor that he would have me preach this lesson. Something I've been wrestling with this whole week. And specifically this passage and this person of Barnabas. Because it's, it's easy being in my position to want to also do the same thing and leading and being the man right anybody maybe not in church planning world but it's it's right it's easy for us to want to be that number one guy or girl but to be honest with you as i read this passage i find joy and i find hope and i find satisfaction in that god can use me god can use any one of you by playing the background and allowing others to lead and you using your gifts to come alongside them to grow your church, to grow your business, to to grow whatever God has placed you in. It's this humility of putting others before yourself. And reading this passage and seeing our boy Barnabas respond in this way has really challenged me and brought me great joy to know that God can work and God can use people coming alongside each other using their gifts and talents that he's given them to help grow his church. Now if you know me at all, this is an ego shot. I'm a, I don't know if this means anything to you, but I'm a, I'm a three on the Enneagram. Which means I'm an achiever. I love to win. I love to be first. I love to be the man. But reading passages like this and God chiseling at that ego... Chiseling at that desire and longing has been helpful and a joyful process. And I think we need, I mean, we need to have more men and women like this in our church. We need more men and women like Barnabas who have the humility to to play the background and see that somebody can use their gifts greater than them for the growth of the church. And maybe Barnabas, when Paul wrote Philippians 2, Maybe Barnabas was on his mind when he wrote this passage and wrote this verse saying, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I can't help but think that that's who Paul was thinking about. Giving a real life example of a man who didn't count himself greater than anyone, but humbled himself and allowed Paul to be more significant than he so that the church would grow. And I believe this is the posture of humility this church needs. We take a look at Antioch and we see that their lives are, are marked by generosity, marked by humility, marked by boldness. And I, I believe that this comes because of who the leaders are in place and who is leading them as a church. And I want you to see that how this leadership, how this dynamic of boldness and humility then leads to action and generosity in this church. And I believe that it's specifically because of who God has placed in leadership. So verse 27, it says, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it by the elders of Barnabas and Saul. You know, there's a saying in church leadership that haunts me. Haunts me at at different times when I think about being a pastor and when I think about leading this church. Culture trumps vision. Culture trumps vision. Every time. That no matter what Dwayne and I say is our vision, love God, love others, love the city, no matter how many times we preach that and say that to you all, if the culture within our leadership does not reflect that, our vision means nothing. And we see that culture dictates and drives the vision of this church here in Antioch. We see how wonderfully they respond when brothers and sisters from Jerusalem are in need. They are living out, as Jesus would say in the New Testament, they're living out this verse that says, The world will know who you are by how you love one another. And you know how I know that the world knew who they were? Is because in verse 26, it says, Antioch is the first place that they were called Christians you know how important that is for us as well as the, those men and women in that church to be called Christians in Antioch was actually you know just a, a slap in the face is very sarcastic right Antioch was known for giving people nicknames to make fun of them history would tell us that a bearded emperor Julian came to visit them one time and they called him goat they gave him that nickname and it's not goat greatest of all time they called him a goat because of he looked like a goat with his beard. Now, I'm not giving you any ammo, all right? I'll remember that. But they gave people nicknames based on how they lived. And the Latin ending of, and, and I'm going to butcher this, so I'm just going to use the letters, I-A-N-I, so like Caesarini. that means that those, those people belong to the party of Caesar. So to receive Christian, that I-A-N-S, means that these men and women in Antioch belong to the party of Christ. But the people who gave them this nickname were Gentile, non-believing, immoral people. That this Gentile world could see by their lives and how they loved one another that this is who they belong to. And then... As we see in verse 29, this is how they lived that out. They were determined, once they heard that the prophecy of Jerusalem was coming and that there would be a famine, they got together, they looked at their gifts, they looked at their resources, and according to their own abilities, they gave as they had. They didn't, they didn't make everybody give the same amount. They didn't make everybody kind of get into this giving campaign, right? No, like, what they did was they, they saw what they needed, or saw what they had and gave how, how this church needed. And you'll notice that they then sent it. I, I love this. They then sent it back with Barnabas and Saul. And if you remember, and this would have been a period about 10 years, right? The last time Saul was in Jerusalem, he was being stoned. And because of the, the generosity of this church, because of the generosity and humility of this leadership, he's able to then go back to people who had hated him. Despite how they responded in order to bless them with this gift. And this is is the characteristic and quality of the first Gentile church. This is the turning point in the New Testament where the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. And these are the stories of the no named heroes with no capes, but were marked by these qualities it's because of what Christ had done for them that they were then able to live out this boldness, this humility, and this generosity. And my prayer for us this morning is that we would be described as this culture of Antioch. That we would be described as humble, as generous, as bold. That the people outside of this church, that the, the, the people who are non believers would call us Christians not based on our verbiage but based on our actions and the life we live here in Indianapolis the life that we live in our spheres of influence that our faith would be manifested in our works you see just like our heroes that we read about today we too can be bold and here's why we can be be bold Because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives within us. And all the promises of eternal life with the Lord have been given to us. And we know that the promises that God gives, he does not break. So because of that, we too can echo Paul's words and live a full life pursuing Christ. He says to live is Christ, to die is gain, and we can live in that boldness. We can be humble because of Christ, who (coughs) through, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, We can be humble because Christ humbled himself in order to bring us into the family of God, in order to be able to be called sons and daughters of God. We can be humble just like Christ because we've been given this same spirit. And finally, we can be generous. We can be marked by generosity because Christ generously gave up all that he had in order to redeem us. We say this verse so often and I'm going to say it till the wheels fall off. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ generously gave up all that he had so that we could then receive eternal life for those who believe in him. And we then can now live generously because of what we've received. So I'm going to get in and close and The band wants to come up. We're going to end our time in communion this morning. And one of the ways that we celebrate being in Christ is through this picture of God's faithfulness to us in Christ. Where we come before the Lord and we get to celebrate and we get to remember We get to be challenged by all that Christ has done for us, the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood so that we would be covered, so that we would be called sons and daughters, so that we would be delighted in. So as the band plays and as we partake in communion, guys, I want you to just remember and reflect on these truths. Remember and reflect what Christ has done for us that allows us to be bold, that allows us to be humble, that allows us to be generous and go and give all that we have. Reflect on these truths. And if there's sin to be confessed, confess it. If there's relationships that need to be reconciled, refrain from communion and go and reconcile before you take in this beautiful gift. And then if you just need some time to sit there and and worship, do that. But let us celebrate this morning. Let us celebrate the truth that we have that Christ has done all that we need by living the life that we could never live, dying the death we so rightly deserve, and raising from the grave, defeating sin and death, and sealing sealing our election in Christ. And so... That would be my prayer for you guys this morning is that these truths would then compel us to go live humbly, generously, and boldly where you're at. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy that you have bestowed upon us, Lord, so generously. Lord, that you did not equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you came to earth. You lived that life for us. You died the death we deserved. You defeated sin and death on our behalf. Lord, as we come into this time of communion, Lord, may we celebrate these truths. But as we celebrate, Lord, may it also compel us to go compel us to be bold, compel us to be humble, compel us to be generous to the dark and dying world around us. Lord, this is the picture that we see of the heroes of our faith, that they are transformed by this truth. So may we also be marked like they, as Christians, as ones who people see that we belong to Christ, just by our words, Lord, but also by our deeds. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church. At